Hebrews chapter 4, beginning now at verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest as he has said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he's spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day saying in David today, after such a long time, as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Father. We understand that this passage speaks to us about the rest that you have for your people in Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you'd give every person here now the ability to understand this, not only intellectually, but, Lord, I pray that you would give us, by the presence and the gift of your spirit, the ability to understand this spiritually for our life. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things I love about this letter to the Hebrews is that it's a very logical book. It follows a very logical development. And so oftentimes the writer of the Hebrews will make an argument and then he'll apply it in a very practical way to the lives of those that he was speaking to or writing to. And that's just one of the sections that we have here is one of these very pointed application points. Last week in the second half of Hebrews chapter 3, we saw how it was presented very powerfully, this concept that Jesus gives rest. Now he's going to speak more about that rest, but really more in the terms of Jesus promising and granting it unto his people. So look at how it begins here in the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. I mean, you just pick it up really just from the very first word of chapter four, where he says, therefore, therefore implies building upon a prior argument, a prior idea. And the prior idea was very plain that God has given his people a promise of rest. And we talked about this at some length last time. How really the key to entering into this rest that God had for us is this idea of faith. Unbelief keeps people out from this rest. Faith allows them to enter into it. But one of the things that I pointed out last week that I want to take a little bit of time to repeat the idea because I think it's so important is that this idea of faith 
leading into the rest that God has for us, it is not merely intellectual agreement. And in the minds of many people today, that's what faith is. I mean, I think that's sort of the general opinion of the man on the street and many people even within the community of those who follow Jesus Christ. The idea is faith is just agreeing with a checklist of certain events that happened or people that lived. And many people say, well, I believe that Jesus lived. I believe that Jesus died. I even believe he died for the sins of the world and so forth. And so on's checking off certain intellectual agreement. But even as it says later on in the book of James, the demons believe such things and it makes them tremble. No, what we're really talking about when we're talking about faith is not merely intellectual agreement, though that's an aspect of it, but much more so. It's this idea of trusting in Jesus, of relying upon Jesus, of clinging to him, in particular, who he is and what he did for us on the cross. So it's different than just something that's done with the mind. It's done with the life. And this life that trust Jesus in this way is made up of several different aspects. There is the aspect of the mind and of intellectual understanding and agreement with certain things. There's no denying it. Matter of fact, we welcome it. But then there's also other aspects. There's also the aspect of doing in the sense that God requires of us a certain moral standard. And part of the work of Jesus Christ in our life is to mold us into that moral standard. But it's not just believing or thinking in the mind. It's not just this, but it is also a life to be experienced. Sometimes this idea of the life to be experienced in the Christian life, sometimes this is the most difficult to talk about because you know how it is. Everybody's experience can be somewhat different. But this is what I want you to understand. What the writer to the Hebrews speaks about in chapter four is very experiential. And some of you have it, and some of you don't. And I feel awkward speaking about it in those terms, because I don't want to make this great divide in the body of Christ and act as if among the community of those who follow Jesus, oh, there's some who are wonderful and there's some who are losers. That's not the idea at all. But what the writer of the Hebrews tells us here makes no sense whatsoever unless you understand That there are some people who don't enjoy this rich heritage that Jesus Christ wants them to experience. So we're going to talk about that this morning. But maybe first what we need to talk about is just a little bit of an understanding of what this rest is that he speaks of. And again, I'm up against a big challenge because this rest is in some ways experiential and it can be very difficult to describe an experience. Sometimes it's more familiar to you to know either you have the experience or you don't have it, but to really describe it can be difficult. I'll rely a little bit on the outline of an old writer, an old Puritan named John Owen. He described this rest in terms of five aspects and I'll just sort of click through the list with you. First of all, he said that rest means Peace with God. It's a satisfied soul and it's a satisfied conscience. I don't know. It's so strange because so many in our culture today just seem to be dead to God whatsoever. But listen, when you know what it's like to be out of peace with God and know what it's like to be in peace with God, to be at rest with your conscience, it's a dramatic change. I mean, you can describe it literally as feeling like a burden has been lifted from your life, like a pack has been removed from your shoulder, that a shadow that once blocked you and God has been taken away. So there's that aspect of it. Rest means peace with God. It also means 
freedom from a slave-like, bondage-like spirit in the worship and service of God. There are some people who live their entire Christian experience in sort of this cringing thing from before God. They always think that God is irritated with them, that he's annoyed with them, that he's about to stomp them. And they have a sense, I deserve this. Why doesn't God do this? They think if they were God, I would be annoyed with me. But listen, that is not the rest. The rest means a removal of that. And again, John Owen continued. He said that rest also means deliverance from the burden of the ceremonies of the Levitical law. We're not bound to the different ceremonial observances of the Levitical law because the rest that we have in Jesus Christ has fulfilled those and satisfied them. He pointed out that rest also means the freedom of worship according to the gospel and that rest means, I like his fifth point the best, rest means the rest that God himself enjoys. This is what's important to understand. Rest in this sense does not mean ceasing activity. That's normally how we think of rest, doesn't it? Isn't it? I mean, I'll tell you this, uh, when I'm done this afternoon with the second service and then we're going to go into the video studio and ask the questions that people text in. And when all that's over and I've talked to people and whatever, so when I'm done here for the day, I'm going to go home and rest this afternoon. I'll probably take a nap. I'll get a little something to eat and I'll come back here this evening for the 530 service. For me, rest this afternoon will pretty much mean a ceasing from activity. But that's not really the rest that's spoken of here. Because God himself is a very active God. Aren't you glad that God is on duty today? That he doesn't take Sundays off. That God works all the time. Nevertheless, God is not anxious in heaven. This thinking, this idea gives so much peace to my own soul when I realize that God is not pacing back and forth in the throne room of heaven with his head in his hands, wondering, what am I going to do with this world? You know, God doesn't think the school year's starting. Oh, what's going to happen with those kids? God isn't up in heaven thinking, oh, it was all going so well until they invented the Internet. Now what do I do? God isn't anxious. He's not worried. God is at perfect peace in heaven. And this rest means some of that same peace that God himself enjoys. You could say that this rest that God intends for us is finally and completely consummated for us in heaven. Don't you believe that there's rest for God's people in heaven? That there's no more worry. There's no more strife. There's no more anxiety. It's just life lived on a different level. Well, we could say that the rest that God has for us right here, right now, is a taste of heaven that he gives to us in our daily life today. Now, I do want to say this as well. Nobody should misunderstand me. The rest that is spoken of here in Hebrews chapter 4 does not mean an easy life. Some people think that way. Come to Jesus and he'll give you an easy life. If that's sort of the way you were introduced into the Christian life, let me give you the full disclosure statement. Being a Christian does not mean an easy life. I mean, look at the life of Jesus. Look at the life of the Apostle Paul. There are places where Paul gets a little bit biographical in his letters and he describes some of the burdens and the hardships of his life. And it's almost staggering. We think, what a difficult life he led. Yet nevertheless, there was a note of triumph. There was a note of rest. There was a note of peace in Paul's life. So much so that he could say things like this. To live is Christ and to die is gain. What can the world do to such a man as that? You kill him, he says, I gain. I live on, it's Christ. It doesn't really matter to me one way or the other. And so this rest has a lot of different 
aspects and qualities to it. But notice what he says right here later on in verse 1. He says, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. This place of rest is so wonderful, it's so vital, that it should concern us when we or when others seem to come short of it. It isn't enough to almost come into this rest. You need to follow all the way through it. Now, I look at the community of of the follower of Jesus in the world today. I look at Christians all over the world. And to me, it seems like Christians are concerned about a lot of things. Sometimes Christians are concerned about the way the culture is going. Sometimes they're concerned about the government. Sometimes they're concerned about corruption in the church. They're concerned about this or that. Many of these are legitimate concerns. I'm not here to debate any one of those individual concerns. I'm just saying this. When's the last time you found Christians really worried that they weren't entering into God's rest? Yet nevertheless, the writer of the Hebrews says, if you're not in this rest, you should fear. You should be anxious inside. You should say, God has something for me to live and experience, and I am falling short of it. And this is the way that God designed my Christian experience to be. I need to press in and gain it. Again, I need to say that this means that some people have it and some people don't. Now, why is this? Well, wouldn't you say first and foremost, some people have this rest and some don't because some have never really entrusted their life to Jesus Christ. Some have never come to him in that sense of trusting in, relying on, clinging to. They've never really put their trust in who Jesus is and what he did for their life, especially what he did for them on the cross. And if that's where a person is, then they're in that fundamental place of separation from God. And no wonder they don't have this rest. Look, the answer for you, if you fall in that category, is to simply stop this delay, stop being on the outside looking in, and give your life to Jesus Christ today. And I use those words very literally. Very much in your mental conception and sort of the effect of your spirit before God, say to God, I give my life to you. It is no longer my life, it is yours. I surrender it to you. And I put my trust in Jesus and who he is and what he did for me. It will involve some sense of repentance. It will involve some sense of self-renunciation because you're yielding your life to his. But this is how we enter into this rest. Then I would say that there's almost a second category among us. People who have this rest, yet maybe they don't have the vocabulary or the biblical wherewithal to really describe it. I believe that that probably speaks to many people here. You actually think about it. And I hope that even as I'm speaking, you're having a conversation with the Holy Spirit. You know, I really believe you should do that whenever you hear preaching. Whenever you hear God's word being taught, you should be having a conversation with the Holy Spirit as I speak. You should be asking, is this me? Are you speaking to me on this point, God? I want to be open to this. Maybe I walked into this room, didn't thinking I had this problem, but maybe I do. And let the Holy Spirit of God speak to your heart about it. Well, maybe it's very possible that the Holy Spirit's speaking to some people right now, saying you have this rest. You weren't just able to articulate it. And as I'm describing it here in this passion, he goes, yes, that's me. Wonderful. Thank you, God. Now I can put some words to what I've already experienced. And I want to say I am so grateful that the Christian life isn't limited by what we can describe or articulate. That there are some things that I can have and experience in the Christian life, even though I don't understand them yet. 
Now, I want to push on to more and more understanding, of course. But yet I'm not limited in my experience all to what I can exactly understand or describe. Then there's a third category, perhaps a category of those who do not have this rest, because even though they do trust Jesus in a general sense or they've trusted Jesus for things in the past right now in a critical place of their life, they are not trusting Jesus at a point that he's calling to them right now. The start of a school year, a new time of transition. Uh, some pressure at family or at work. I mean, I could go on and on and just make a list and hope that it hits you somewhere. But you understand, don't you? That there's some particular point in your life where Jesus Christ is challenging you. Trust me in this. Don't just believe something in your mind. Trust me in your life with this. And whether or not you enter into the rest of God at that particular point is going to depend on whether you trust him. Now, just hearing God's word isn't necessarily going to solve this problem for you. Look at what he says there in verse two. He says, for indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. In other words, what he's saying is that ancient Israel, when they were in the wilderness, they heard the words of God. Yet because they did not mix the hearing of the word with faith, they were denied. They were denied the rest that God had for them. It says very plainly that it did not profit them because they did not receive it with faith. Hearing gave them the opportunity, but the opportunity was only fulfilled if the word they heard was mixed with faith. Look at that phrase, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. This tells us that a person may hear God's word but it be actually a very little effect in their life because when they hear it, they do not internally mix it with faith. Isn't this really a tremendous challenge? It explains to us why two people can sit side by side and hear the same message. And for one of them, it's a beautiful time of spiritual feeding and benefit and blessing. And they say, yes, I enter into this experience that God has to me. And for the other person, they say, good heavens, that was boring. I don't know how anybody could get anything from that. Now, listen, let's be honest. Sometimes that's the fault of the preacher, isn't it? Because there are some preachers out there that have the unique gift of taking the living, breathing, powerful word of God and making it seem boring. I'm not going to call that a gift. Maybe it's a curse. But they, they just have this ability. But listen, listen. The idea is that it's not only a responsibility on the part of the preacher. There's also a responsibility on the part of the hearers. And here's your responsibility to take what you hear and to mix it with faith. To say, yes, I believe. And this doesn't matter necessarily with how great the preaching is, even though I think it's important for the preacher to desire to be better and better and more effective and more effective in his preaching. But yet there's something that has to do in the heart of those who hear. I think what it would be like to get into a time machine and go back to some of the great preachers of history. I have a great interest in history, and and I love just thinking about and hearing about different preachers from ancient history or from more recent history. I think, and you guys know this, it's no surprise to you, I have a real, you know, affection for Charles Spurgeon. I read a lot of Spurgeon stuff. I seem to quote him just about every message, and don't worry, my Spurgeon quote is coming up a little bit later. 
I just love Spurgeon. I think, wow, amazing it would be to go there and to actually hear Spurgeon. If I could get in the time machine and go back to the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, perhaps in the years of his greatest strength in the 1860s and 1870s, and just see what an amazing work of God there. But I realize that even if I were sitting in that place and hearing Spurgeon preach with his own words, in his own voice, if I did not mix it with faith, it would be a very little effect. I like what the old commentator Adam Clark said about this phrase mixed with faith. He said that it was a word related to the effect of digestion and that actually that's what you're doing. It's as if you can eat and feed upon the word of God. But faith is what helps with the the digestion of it and helps it to be nutritious, so to speak, for the entire body. And so they have to have it mixed with faith. Going on here now to verse three, he says, For we who have believed do enter into that rest, as he said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. You see, he says very plainly there in verse 3, We who have believed do enter that rest. This is in contrast to those for whom their unbelief prevented them from coming into the rest. So this area of rest for the Christian, it's entered into by faith, not by religious ceremony, not even necessarily by moral behavior or good works, but rather by this trust in God. And as he says, it is his rest. Do you see that phrase in verse 3? They shall enter into my rest. God emphasizing there that the rest belongs to him. It's his rest. And he invites us to enter into it by faith. Now, look, let's continue on now with verse six, where he says this. Since, therefore, it remains that some must enter it. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day saying in David today, after such a long time, as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would have not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Now, notice he says, building on the same point in verse six, therefore, it remains that some must enter into it. God has this area of experience, this area, this realm for people to enter into, and they must enter into it. But the critical thing is verse seven today, if you will hear his voice again, he's drawing on the same themes, quoting from Psalm 95, where David encouraged God's people to enter into this rest, telling them that the key was faith, but giving them an urgency to do it, saying today is the day. Don't delay it for day after day. Verse nine, concluding that idea there, therefore, remains a rest for the people of God. You see, all this together proves the point that there's a rest for the people of God, a rest that's spiritual, yet it's patterned after the rest that God gave to Israel in the days of Joshua, who led them into Israel. Now, previously, before our time now in the book of Hebrews, we were in the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings, and we talked about what that was like for Israel, how they came out of Egypt, how they were in the wilderness, but eventually, after the book of Exodus, God would lead them into the promised land. 
But that first generation that came up out of Egypt was a generation of unbelief. And they could not enter into this rest of the promised land that God had for them. But after that generation of unbelief died, God led through Joshua Israel into the promised land. And this is what he has for us. We need our own Joshua, so to speak, to lead us into the land that God has for us. And this works out perfectly because analogy, you can say that Jesus is our Joshua. Matter of fact, in the original languages, it works even more neatly than that, because in the original languages, the name Jesus and the name Joshua are identical. Jesus is simply the Greek way of saying the Old Testament name Joshua. When Jesus's mother, Mary, called him in from the street to come and stop playing, she called out, Joshua, Joshua, come in. And he knew that was his name. So Jesus is our Joshua leading us into this land of rest, even as God had for Israel. So Canaan is a picture of this rest. The Sabbath day is a picture of this rest. The year of Jubilee is a picture of this rest. Yet all of these are pictures. The reality is Jesus. And this is what's very important. It's not about geography. You don't have to move to Israel to get this rest. It's not about a day of the week. You don't have to wait till Sunday or Saturday, whichever day you would want to count as the Sabbath. You don't have to wait until the Sabbath day to enter into this rest. It's not about geography. It's not about a day of the week. It's about Jesus. And he is here for us every place and every day of the week. That's the rest that God has for us. But here's the point. You have to ask yourself very soberly, do I have this rest? And pretending that you have it will not satisfy it for you in your life. Look, we need to be very honest upon this point. Among the community of the followers of Jesus, there's a lot of pretending that goes on. And sometimes people pretend more than any other place within the walls of a church. People sometimes are so hesitant to display their own brokenness or their own need before God. Why? Well, the, usually it's just the threat of being embarrassed in front of men. I've had people say to me before that, well, they, they, they really felt like crying and they wanted to cry under the depth of what God was doing in their heart, but they didn't want to mess up their makeup. It was a woman who told me that, not a man. Well, these days, I don't know how certain you could be of that, but. And listen, I, I understand that on one level. But another level, shouldn't we really have the attitude that if God is doing something deep and profound in my life, as I sit under the word of God, if the Holy Spirit, forget what the preacher's saying, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to me about some deep and profound thing in my life, and if it would move me to tears, God forbid that out of pride I would try to hold them back. Because you know what? At the bottom line, who cares what man thinks? If God moves me to tears, then let me weep. And secondly, don't we get this twisted notion of what man would think? Honestly, if the person next to you, a person three rows over from you, started to weep because of God was doing in their life, would you despise them? You'd probably cherish it. 
You'd probably say, thank you, Jesus. Would you make my heart as soft as theirs? And again, we, we have to stop pretending. Spurgeon told a story about this. This is a Spurgeon story for the day. Spurgeon told a story of hearing a godly minister who was asked to speak on the subject, joy in God. That's a great subject for a preacher to speak on, joy in God. And as he stood to address the congregation, this is what he said. He was quiet for a moment, then he said this, quote, he said, I'm sorry that I've been requested to speak upon this topic, for the fact is I am not walking in the light, but I am crying out to God, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. I have grieved my heavenly father and I am in the dark. That's what this minister said before a collection of God's people. Spurgeon said that the man then sat down and just started to weep uncontrollably. And Spurgeon said that there wasn't a dry eye in the house when the preacher started to weep that way. Spurgeon said this, quote, This honest confession did far more good than if he had patched up a tale and told of some stale experience from years before. If you have not entered into rest, do not say that you have. I think those are good points from Spurgeon. Can we be bold enough to bear our heart before God just a little bit here and say, Lord, would you examine my heart? If I'm not walking in this, I'm not living this, then I want to and I want to enter in through faith. Let's continue on now to verse 10 where he says this. For he who has entered his rest has himself also seized from his works as God did from his. You see, entering into this rest means no longer needing to work. Now, please understand, it's not as if you stop doing good works from this place of rest. No, quite the opposite. I think you do more good works than ever, but you stop from doing works in the sense of doing them to justify yourself before God. I am no longer in the place where I feel like I have to earn my standing before him, that I have to deserve my standing before him. And I'm freed to serve God and to love people on completely a different basis. I'm free to love them and serve them from this place of rest, not in order to gain the place of rest. And I don't know if that distinction is too fine for some of us to really grab a hold of, but there is a distinction there. I thought of a way to illustrate it, and really the best way I could think of was something from my own life, and so I'll share it with you if it's not too personal for me to share. But some of you know that a little more than a year ago, it was last year in June, I donated a kidney. And I did it as what they call a non-directed donation. I just donated it to somebody who needed it. And I really had no contact or didn't even really know. I did just because of some communication breakdowns. I never even heard who got it or what their situation was. But just this week, I got a letter from the person who received the kidney. And it was a lady in New York. She's a 33-year-old lady, a former Marine of all things, lives in New York. It's the second kidney transplant that she's had. The first one lasted her about 10 years. It was a relative of her who donated it to her. And she has a nine-year-old son. And I got a letter from her and a little note from the son saying, just, oh, it was just a wonderful, sweet letter. Now, I got to say that as I look at my own life, as I look at my own motivations for doing it, as much as I can read my own heart, which is imperfect, but as much as I can read my own heart, 
Honestly, I didn't do it to earn anything before God. I didn't do it to make God love me more. I didn't do it to to earn me more favor before God. As much as I can discern my own heart, I did it because I know God loves me. I know I'm in his grace and I'm just so grateful for what he's doing for me. So why can't I do something good for somebody else? You see the difference? The difference between doing something to try to earn God's favor or blessing and instead simply realizing that, Lord, in gratitude, I'll try to do things for others. So no, no, we cease from works in this self-justifying way, but we're free to do more good than ever for those who need it. That's why he says here, and we'll conclude with this in verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter into that rest, lest anyone fall or fail rather according to the same example of disobedience well we're going to end on this verse we'll start with this verse next week but he says be diligent to enter this rest friends this rest that god has for you is worth it it's worth it for you to open up your heart for a deep examination of your soul it's worth it for you to stop pretending it's worth it for you to do what you must do to put your trust in Jesus and again i'm not talking i'm going to talk about what i said at the very beginning i'm not just talking about intellectual agreement i'm talking about trusting in relying on clinging to who Jesus is and especially what he did for you on the cross but i'll conclude with this one thought You can't really put your trust in Jesus until you take it off of yourself. For some of you, this is very difficult because you're sharp people. You're very capable. You can do things. You're a man or woman of great accomplishment. You find it particularly difficult to stop trusting in yourself because honestly, in many areas of your life, trusting in yourself or believing in yourself may have seemed to work to this point. I tell you, it'll never work for entering into the rest that God has for you. And what a difference in your life when you have it. Father, this is my prayer. I pray that right now, that by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to hearts that don't have this rest, hearts that are trusting in themselves, even if it's at a particular point in their life, they're trusting in that more than putting their trust in who Jesus is and what he did for them. Help us, Lord. Help us to do wonderful things for you and for this world out of a place of rest, not in the effort to enter into it. Help us, Lord. Help us to trust in, to rely upon, to cling to Jesus in every aspect of our life, that we're awakened to do it. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Do something with it now. In Jesus' name, amen.